There we go. So for the people listening at home, we're sitting in, what do you call it, Stamford Hill or South Tottenham? <laughs> we're in Stamford Hill, South Tottenham, and we're going to be talking about boundaries, we're going to be talking about traditions, we're going to be talking about other things from an Essanon perspective and a more general 12-step perspective. So uh, I'm Tim, I'm an alcoholic, and I've attended all sorts of other fellowships for which I'm very grateful over the years. Um, you wanted to talk, I know, about boundaries. That was one of the topics. Can anyone say what you mean by boundaries? Because people mean different things. Does anyone want to offer what their view of a boundary is? I have issues with boundaries. I know I do. <laughs> okay. That's all I know. Um, boundaries in, I think, in different relationships. When I have something with the kids, um, when to do, when to do, how to do a lot, when, when to let them do for themselves, and like. Um, and boundaries is, I guess, a fine line between controlling and trying to change a person and between protecting <coughs> myself and saying this I can and this I can't and anytime it's confusing. I'm going to pause the tape and I'm going to ask you to provide me with some actual situations and then we can look at how we would apply the traditions to those situations because then we can... Uh, anonymize what we're talking about but get some detail in there okay so let's just pause the t right so we're back in the room we've got some material to play with I'm gonna share a few things about um, uh, why I'm not just an alcoholic I've got a, an anon problem as well and how I use the steps and traditions so the traditions particularly to try and solve that problem. Um, okay, so in the, in the house I grew up in, my father was physically there, and his body was in the room, at least some of the time. He worked away a lot for a number of years, but he was physically there. Except he wasn't really there. <laughs> he was behind a newspaper, he didn't really do anything, we had a very large garden. He never did anything in the garden except deadhead some of the flowers, but never did any of the work. And my mother was rushing around being everyone. So she had to deal with the finances. My father was terrible at finances. Um, uh, she had to, what else did she have to do? She dealt with the house, she dealt with the garden, she dealt with me, she dealt with him, she dealt with everything. She was permanently stressed, permanently busy, and permanently looking for someone to blame. And there is a Suzanne Vega song where she says, um, uh, Father's a riddle, mother is a head full of bees. And you can imagine <laughs> just the sat this ominous sound of constant buzzing. So I grew up surrounded by... Um, this, uh, it wasn't chaos, but it was this, this constant set sense of high alert and threat. Something was going to get us. We never knew exactly what, 
and we had to remain permanently vigilant and very, very busy to stop whatever it was happening. No one ever said what it was, but there was the sense that unless we were busy and paid attention and kept an eye on everything and controlled and monitored and adjusted and fixed, if we did that all day, every day, things might just be okay. And there were some tangible threats to the family finances and other things as well. So it wasn't a relaxed environment that I grew up in. And uh, this resulted in me as an adult. Uh, I'm the first to notice a threat in any situation. So my head when I read the news always goes ahead. So in 20, 20 years time, what's gonna happen? In 50 years time, what's gonna happen? In 200 years time, how is the planet gonna cope? While everyone else is worried about what someone has just posted on Twitter, I'm thinking 200 years ahead and panicking on behalf of the whole of society. Um, my sense, my Anon problem is essentially a boundary problem because my sense of responsibility extends way beyond what my actual sense of my actual responsibility is to encompass the welfare and well-being of everyone around me or anyone that could affect me in every way my anon disease as it were its ideal is for everyone to be neat and tidy and orderly and organized and scheduled and staying very in a very fixed way within the boundaries set and then we'll be all right and i'm i monitor and if people step out the boundaries they get slapped and when i'm like this i'm the bulldozer i'm the controller of other people um and also this overweening sense of responsibility means if you're in a bad mood i must have caused it so if you're feeling something, you can't possibly be feeling anything because you're feeling it. It must be me. So I have to fix your feeling to get rid of my guilt. Does that ring any bells? Okay, just <laughs> nodding gently when you identify really helps, but then I know that it's got through. Um, so, so with that controlling side of my personality, with it comes a huge amount of guilt. If something goes wrong, it's my fault because I wasn't paying attention enough. Um, and I'll give you an example this morning. The uh, central heating system was making some bizarre noises. I mean, in my household, of course I'm the first to notice because I'm always looking out for threat. Did my other half notice? I think he did, but he hadn't said anything. Like, who would notice a problem in the central heating system and not mention it? But, well, him apparently. But I, so I heard the noises and immediately I'm on high alert. I took the hot water's clearly not working properly. It's warm, but that's from yesterday. So it's not working this morning. Immediately I feel guilty because the hot water system is not working and I don't know how to fit. I'm, I'm not a hot water engineer, but I feel guilty that I can't work out what's wrong as though I ought to know what's wrong and ought to be able to fix. And there's me with my ear next to it as if like I'm going to hear something which is going to help me diagnose what the problem is. And what am I doing there? It's completely, it's completely insane. And this is a boundary problem. The sense of my responsibility goes way beyond my actual responsibility. Now, the thing is, when you're busy being in charge 
of literally everything. The thing that goes to the bottom of the pile of things to do is the things I need to do to keep my show on the road. So I will find myself at quarter to ten at night having a small meltdown which appears to come from nowhere. Like I suddenly someone says something, it's literally too much for me to handle because the tension has been raise, rising and rising and rising and I've been coping and coping and coping so someone says something or just asks a question which requires me to give some kind of answer and it's too much and I melt down because I've been busy, for, I've, I was up at quarter to six in the morning, I've now been up for 16 hours, I stopped for eight minutes where I passed out just after lunch, <laughs> came to and then I'm going again. So I end up neglecting myself in all sorts of fundamental ways. Tired, tense, and don't ask me any questions. <laughs> I've got enough to do without answering everyone's questions as well, because I'm not looking after myself. Um, and then the other side of it, so that's to do with me and my responsibilities. But also I start to, when I get into relationships with other people, it all goes wrong as well because uh, I took on the, they say you marry one parent and become the other. You can't break the rule. Apparently you can't break the rule. That's just the rule. I didn't make up the rule. I'm just observing that's the rule. It's not true in every case, but I became like my mother. And so of course I marry someone that is amazing, but not super practical, not super functional when it comes to looking after stuff around the home. I'm the one that notices everything, so does everything first. <laughs> so, uh, my mother's attitude towards my father was, he's useless, so I have to do everything. So he can't be given any responsibility because he'll mess it up anyway, so I have to pick up the pieces. Of course, my other half is so like my father in this way and many other ways, and I'm so like my mother. And I, I find I, I've done this with organisations. I've had jobs where I go in where I'm, in inverted commas, the only competent one. So I have to, so, and I can't trust anyone else to do anything because if they do, they'll mess it up. It takes longer for me to do it right. To You know, when they do the wash, when they do the dishes and it's covered in more grease afterwards, than it was before and so it takes it like if they just let you do it to start with it would have been quicker but inspecting everything and redoing it and they've left it overnight so it's now caked if they've done it at the t you can't trust anyone and so you treat everyone like children uh, <laughs> and at the same time um, in denying people's responsibility for their own lives um, because I'm exonerating people the whole time, oh, it, so it's as though they're children, they can't be held accountable. I end up putting up with behaviour that other people wouldn't put up with. And I might set a boundary, have an ultimatum, but then your heart starts to bleed after a while. The, it's like, you know, they're like the cat scratching at the door. Eventually you let them back in and they're very sorry, they'll do it different next time, they'll pay more attention. They won't do this, they'll start doing that. And then within a week, you're back at square one. 
So this constant pattern of basically allowing myself to be the martyr doormat, where I do everything, I'm the, I, the, I'm the one sacrificing myself for everyone else and letting them walk all over me. And then at the same time, because my needs are so unmet, it's suddenly everyone else's fault that my needs aren't met. So blaming other people for how I feel or wanting them to rescue me and then being upset because they won't rescue me. Now, any one of these aspects will kill you. <laughs> so not so when I don't take responsibility for me, um, my life starts to get ragged round the edges. Uh, when I start to take responsibility for everyone else, apart from the fact that it annoys them, uh, I end up exhausted and tense. When I don't let other people take responsibility for themselves, I infantilize them and I let them get away with stuff they shouldn't be getting away with. Um, and then when I get them to take responsibility for me, I'm just, that, that's the last stage of this puzzle. So it's everything I feel is your fault and it's your job to fix it and you're not fixing it and that's just making it worse. So that's the whole problem. I don't take responsibility for me, but I do take responsibility for you. I won't let you take responsibility for you, but I will make you responsible for me. Right. Um, and the steps will go a long way to sorting this out. But... It's really the traditions which I think are the powerhouse of resolving this long term. Um, let me think of the best way to begin with this. Um, I'm going to talk first of all about boundaries with sponsorship. Um, as if you come from a family where there are very tricky relationships where those boundaries of responsibility are totally blurred and you're in recovery and you're trying to sponsor someone else who is also in recovery because that's why you're sponsoring them they're going to be bringing the same model of of, of lack of boundaries and distorted perceptions of responsibility they're bringing that to the table you're bringing your own stuff to the table and i don't know about you but for the first I don't know, 100, 200 people I sponsored over... I've been in recovery since 1993. Um, so you end up sponsoring a lot of people if you stay around for long enough. Uh, for the first few score, for the first couple of hundred, an awful lot of those family dynamics get replayed in the sponsor-sponsee relationship. And you realise you're dancing a very familiar dance. The feelings feel the same. You feel that you're being positioned as someone's parent and they're talking to you like you used to talk to your mother. And all of these... Does that make any sense? That, that, that you're replicating the dysfunctional relationships in the family in the sponsor-sponsee relationship. And one of the amazing things about sponsoring people, and I think why it's so important is that it provides you with a safe playground to learn how to set boundaries and to 
uh, get it wrong a thousand times, but then start to get it right. You, so you're not going to fix it straight away. So get, get away from that idea. It's not, you're not going to get it right straight away, but you're not going to kill anyone in the process either. And <laughs> if it all gets too much, this is the amazing thing about sponsor-sponsee relationships. I've got a sense, set of um, sponsorship after t- 26, 27 years of doing this. I, I have a set of sponsorship terms. So once I've started to get to know someone as a sponsee, I, we've maybe spoken two or three times. I'm pretty confident they're up for the deal. I'll say, by the way, here are the terms. And I send them the terms. And the terms make things very clear about whose responsibility is what, what my duties are, what your duties are, what the bottom lines are, and this is the and this is the thing that makes sponsorship the the amazing scenario to test out how to set boundaries and how to act differently is I say to the sponsees, if at any point I'm done, I'm allowed to walk away and I don't have to say why. I can just say I'm done. If at any point you want to walk away, you are so welcome. You don't even need to tell me. (laughs) If you want to tell me, that's fine. But even if you just want to stop calling, that's fine too. So it's it's not like a family relationship where you're kind of stuck with them for life unless you do something which, I mean, divorce is not an easy thing to, it's not an easy switch to flick. And certainly with, with children, with parents, there's no divorce switch to flick. So you're stuck with them. So you get it wrong and then the ramifications go on for years. But with sponsor sponsor relationships, if it all goes wrong, the whole thing dissolves, the whole drama dissolves into nothing, like a television program stopping and you lick your wounds and go on to the next person. But there's always someone else. So this is why it's a great way to practice boundaries. And what I'm going to do is talk about the, the boundary situation with sponsees. And then from that, there are some, some lessons. I've got boundary situations I can talk about with my other half, um, who's basically functional, but is eccentric. So we've had to negotiate a number of things. And boundary situations with work. Um, because organizations can be dysfunctional and I can have to set boundaries there too. So with the sponsor-sponsee relationship, um, if the sickness, the Al-Anon or the Anon sickness is not understanding where I stop and you begin, where my responsibility stops and where your responsibility begins, it's exactly the same issue with sponsors and sponsees. And so my starting point is I am 100% responsible for my attitudes, my thinking, my behavior, my feelings, my internal life. And you are 100% responsible for your attitudes, your thinking, your behavior, your feelings and your internal life. And that's a pretty simple idea. I'm responsible for me, you're responsible for you. But in practice, it's harder to work out. You'd think that would be a simple idea to implement, but the data suggests, 
data from human experience suggests that's not so simple to apply in practice. And with sponsorship, um, where it can go wrong and where it regularly goes wrong is where the sponsor wants the, the sponsee wants the sponsor to become a sort of parent figure. So when you feel bad, it's the sponsor's responsibility to provide comfort and succor. Um, um, the sponsor can have a pathological problem the other way around. So the sponsor want, treats the sponsee like a child, and if the child won't do exactly what the child is told, the child is bad and needs to be punished. <laughs> or the child needs to be turned into a mirror image of the sponsor, so unless you do everything like me, you're getting it wrong. And so the, 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 the transaction that I engage in with sponsorship is really, I keep it really simple. There are two aspects to my sponsorship. Uh, and this starts under Tradition 5. So Tradition 5 is about primary purpose. And with any relationship, whether it's a sponsorship relationship or a family domestic situation like running a household or a marriage or a work situation, my first question is what is my, what is my primary purpose? And if I know that, everything else becomes clearer. And my primary purpose with a sponsee is to provide guidance on how they go through the 12 steps. That's the first thing. And secondly, to answer questions about how to apply the program, and the program is the step, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts for world service, how to apply those 36 sets of principles to any situation that arises. So sponsees get to call me and say, I've done the latest assignment on the steps, let's go through it and then what's next? Or I have a problem, I don't know how to apply the, the program to it. Um, have you ever had a conversation with a sponsee where they call up and they speak for four minutes in a state of high agitation, high emotional agitation, with like loads of detail. Maybe you as a sponsee have done this to your sponsee, so you're upset, you call, all the detail comes out, they have no idea what you're talking about, you get frustrated, you retell the story, it's not consistent with the previous version, and that they now get ripped. Uh, and they start, to, like the sponsor starts to say things, like helpful things, and you start to push back because you don't like what they're saying, so you retell the story from another. So what I mean, in practice, the idea of I'm responsible for me, you're responsible for you, you end up with an actual situation like your husband's just done something, you're upset, the kids have just, just done something, your, your employer has just done something, you're upset, you phone your sponsor, and something has gone, like within three minutes, something has gone wrong in the conversation. Something that I'll do with my sponsees is to say, if you've got a problem, uh, so my responsibility, your responsibility, your responsibility is to work out, is to get the picture clear, get the story clear. And the way I get people to do this is, I, as I say, be systematic about it. Who are, the, who are the players in this situation? What is their relationship to you? So when someone will phone up and say, oh, Susan at work has done X, Y, and Z. Who's Susan? The boss, the cleaner, 
your colleague, a peer, someone that reports to you, someone you report. Who's Susan? A client? Someone in the office opposite? Who, who is this? So who's involved? And then the facts. What happened in the order that the things happened? And then what's the problem here? And there are two types of problem. The first type of problem, and this is straight from the big book on page 87. Um, it says, when agitated or doubtful, we ask for the right thought or action. So my two types of problem are I'm doubtful, I don't know what to do, or I'm agitated, I'm upset, and I want to be not upset. And so I'll, I'll, I'll say to people, and I do this the same, this is exactly what I do with my own sponsor. I've learned how to set out the situation where I want help. That's my responsibility as the sponsee. Um, you set out who's involved, you set out the facts, what happened in the order that they happened, and then you tell me what's your problem. Is it that you don't know what to do? Or is it that you're upset and you don't know how to de-upset yourself? But then, this is the important thing, is that for me to take responsibility for me, for you to take responsibility for you, if I've given you tools of the program already, I want you to tell me how you would apply the tools that you've already been given. And once you've taken the situation to the furthest point that you can take it, based on the tools that you have, I can take you further. What happens a lot of times when sponsorship goes wrong is that the sponsee uh, will just blurb out, blurt out the upsetting situation and then it's the sponsor's job to unpick it, to work out what happened, to suggest the solution. Um, and then somehow to fix the sponsee at the same time. And that's not right. The way I've established grown-up relationships with sponsees is to encourage them to take responsibility as much as they can. And then my responsibility is simply to add to that when they're out of options, when they're out of ideas. If they've done everything available to them and they're still ups upset, they're still confused, then I can come in. And then it's totally clear. Uh, another aspect, um, people become very fixated on sponsors. They want the sponsor to fix them. The sponsor can't fix them. They become upset with the sponsor. And so um, a tradition which is really helpful here is Tradition 7. Uh, so any group is fully self-supporting through its own contributions. The spiritual principle there is that my sponsee is responsible for his or her own, as I said before, beliefs, thinking, behavior, emotions, and internal life. So the sponsee is responsible for building a whole network of people to rely on through which they're ultimately relying on the higher power. I'm not the network, I'm not the higher power. So in a school canteen, you have a dinner lady. As the sponsor, I'm the dinner lady, I'm not the food, I'm not the chef, I'm just the person that is, you know, a couple of days a week facilitating the process. So the sponsee remains totally responsible, even when they're new, for developing the network of relationships they need to be okay. I can be a part of that, but I can't do it for them. So that if the relationship between me and them breaks down, they're fine, because they have a whole network of people to rely on. So that I don't become this sort of figurehead that's responsible for them. And 
the other thing about taking people through the steps, I think, and this is an opinion, so people on the tape, if you're listening to the tape and you don't like the opinion, that's fine, we're allowed to disagree. Um, it's my belief that untreated Al-Anon issues have distorted a lot of the way sponsorship happens in AA, which is the main mothership of recovery. It's the biggest 12-step fellowship. It's the one which started the whole 12-step thing. And so AA still influences Al-Anon and, uh, and all of these other fellowships. Lots of people listen to tapes. And sponsorship in AA can sometimes be very, very ha heavy-handed. And the sponsor is presented as this authority figure. And I used to use the, until about two or three months ago, I used to use the phrase, taking people through the steps. And I've stopped using that phrase. I now say, I don't take anyone through the steps. You take yourself through the steps, but I can help guide you as to what to do next. But it's your responsibility for reading the book, for doing the exercises, for deciding whether or not you want what is in there, for, for, for rather than me spoon-feeding you what the book means. My job is to say, here is the book. You can read. If there's something you don't understand, I can help you with that. If you're trying to puzzle something out and you get stuck, I can help you. But it's your responsibility. And um, I, I'm not going to ask you to say this out loud, to protect the innocent and to protect the guilty. But put your hands up if you've ever had a tense conversation with a sponsor or a sponsee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the rest of you are all as placid as mill ponds, I, I understand. Um, now, in my experience, the tension can often be where the sponsee asks for help or appears to be asking for help. The sponsor suggests something and the sponsee comes back with um, a pattern I call the four R's, which is react. <laughs> so some kind of negative emotional reaction. React, resist, and that can be all sorts of, you know, petty objections or uh, cavils or, um, oh, well, you're asking me to do this, but you didn't ask Susan to do this. Why are you asking me to do something that you didn't ask Susan? So, you know, so, so uh, there, there's some resistance there. Or, but I'm doing so much already and you're asking me to do something more. Oh, well, that won't work because... So lots of, lots of resistance. And then rejection. Well, I'm just not going to do it. And then reproach. How dare you suggest? So it goes from react resist, reject, reproach. And this is a very common pattern. I as a sponsee have done this and I've had sponsees who are incredibly evasive. So you'll ask someone to do something and they'll change the subject. <laughs> you'll ask someone to do something and when I ask them to do something now, I write it down, I've got a, a, a note system on my phone. I write the name, I write the date, I write the heading for the exercise and I write out the exercise and I've got it as a note that I can send someone. So a month later when I said, I asked you to dot, 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 and they said, well, I don't remember that. 
So here's the note I made at the time. It's got a date stamp from the, from the date I made it, the date and time of the telephone conversation. Uh, so people say, well, I, I, I didn't know, I didn't, I, so I forgot about that, or I, I didn't understand, I, we, we must have, there must have been a misunderstanding. No misunderstandings. When something isn't being done, there's a reason why it isn't being done. And one of the really beneficial things is when is to learn as a sponsor to spot when someone is coming back with a uh, a, a, a response of reject and react and resist and reproach, and to stop it then and there by saying, "Did you have you noticed you've gone into the four R's?" So you explain this and say, have you noticed you've done this? How about you note down what I've said and in 20, you think about it for 24 hours and then if you have any questions, see if there is a response. And I've actually said to people who have this pattern a lot, how about, I'm gonna suggest something. What I'm gonna suggest you do is you note it down. You don't say anything, no reaction, leave it for 12. So I tell them before, because I know they're going to react. So I tell them before, I don't want a reaction. I'm just going to tell you something. See if you can just hear it. You're not forced to do anything. And one of the, uh, this is a, a, a another important principle from the traditions. Tradition four says that each group is autonomous, except in as far as it affects another Essanon group or Essanon as a whole. And in personal relationship, it's the same thing. As a sponsor, I'm autonomous. As a spon the sponsee is autonomous, which means I never tell a sponsee to do something. I suggest that they do something. What that means is I have no power over whether or not you do it. If you do it, it must be not because you're trying to please me or do something. Sometimes sponsors will say, you asked me to do this for you. So no, you, it's not for me. It's for you. <laughs> if you want to do it, it must be because you want to do it for you, not because you're doing it for me. You are free not to do it. But I have nothing else to offer. So it, it's, it can look like coercion because there's nothing else to offer, but it's not. I went to a, a, a restaurant. I don't, did I tell you about last time, the restaurant in France? Did I tell you that story? I was on holiday with some friends in Montpellier in France and it was late. It was 2.30 2 in the afternoon. We hadn't had our lunch. We were starving. And we looked up on our phones uh, we wanted to find a good lunch restaurant. So we looked up TripAdvisor and we, we, we got the listing of all the restaurants in Montpellier, 912 restaurants. And the number, all the ones immediately round us in this square were like 357 out of 900. We didn't want to go into a cafe, which is the 357th best restaurant in the city. But the number one restaurant in this city was 200 yards away in a little back street. So we found this little restaurant in a little back street and it was right at the end of lunchtime. So everything was about to shut. And it was a man with a, with a crooked smile and crooked teeth who was the waiter and he was the chef and he was doing the, the washing up. So he was doing everything. 
And just like me. <laughs> yeah, I identified with him as well. But he was in charge. And but the number one restaurant in Montpellier, so something was something was working out well. And uh we asked what the what we could have for lunch and he, he said uh well what I can offer you is this. It was he, the verb he used was the French word for suggest. So he said, I, 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 can, I can suggest to you this. And he named the dish. And I said, well, it... I'm going to pause for a moment. Right, so he makes the suggestion for lunch. And we say, and is there anything else? He said, there's nothing else. If you want lunch, that's what you're going to have. He wasn't making us eat at that restaurant because there are 900 other restaurants in Montpellier. He's suggesting something. It's up to us whether or not we want to go with the suggestion. But he wasn't going to change what he was suggesting just because we didn't like duck whatever it was. I'm vegetarian now, so I wouldn't have been able to eat it today. But anyway. And it's the same with sponsorship. I can suggest something. But if you don't want to do it, you don't even need to tell me, but there's no reason to call me again. It's and that's what suggestion means. Suggestion doesn't mean I have loads of other secret things to offer, which I will only offer if you reject the thing that's on the surface. I've just got one thing to suggest, and it's totally up to you what you do. And I make this clear that people are responsible for their own recoveries. Sometimes people ask for a sponsor. As they say, I want someone to keep me accountable. And I say, deal is off. I am not responsible for your recovery. You are responsible for your recovery. And that keeps... So this is, this is um, tradition four in practice and tradition seven in practice. Tradition four, each group is autonomous, except in as far as it affects the, the, another group or... The fellowship as a whole and so that the other person's behavior is fine unless it crosses a certain line and there is a I, I always have bottom lines in sponsorship relationships um, hysteria verbal abuse um, emotional blackmail severe manipulation which doesn't stop once it's pointed out a anyone can be manipulative we can all be manipulative fine seven times a day but once it's pointed out it needs to stop and if it doesn't deal is off because i spent my i spent too much of my life engaged in relationships which don't work trying to force them to work and i am done doing that there's a principle on page 96 of the big book is you don't run around sponsees trying to force them to do the program if you do you're depriving someone else that needs your energy so you offer and this is the the, the general motto we offer and explain but we don't persuade or convince so i don't need to convince you i'm right i'm going to present some ideas if you like them you'll totally happy to take them on board I'm here to offer some actions to take you can take them or not take them and <coughs> I'm free my duty once I've given you the information my duty is discharged I'm done I talked to a girl this morning in AA whose own sponsee 
is having a bit of trouble with the not drinking bit of the AA programme. <laughs> she's doing, I mean, she's trying hard in lots of ways, but the, the poor girl, the, 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 the girl at the end of the chain, uh, has relapsed again, and it's the thousandth relapse, and there's lots of medication involved, and, you know, is the medication triggering the relapse or making it impossible for her to get sober? Impossible to tell, and my friend, who phoned this morning, was going spare spare there's what whatever she said was clearly not fixing it and she didn't know what to say next what am i supposed to do about this situation it's not your situation even the phrase my sponsee disaster she doesn't belong to you your my job some sometimes people say to me how many people do you sponsor and this is not a straightforward question I'm more interested in why you want to know. That's the interesting question. Lots of interesting questions, lots of apparently interesting questions have got secret motives behind them. So when Moses says to the burning bush, you know, what's your name? That's not pleasant cocktail party chat. There is a purpose behind that. We can go and look up what the purpose is in whatever commentary you want. But anyway, innocent questions, apparently innocent questions aren't always innocent. People ask me, how many people do you sponsor? And I say, none. They said, well, I thought you sponsor loads of people. I said, right now, they're doing whatever they're doing. None of them are in front of me. I'm sponsoring no one. If I think I'm sponsoring people when they're not in the room, what am I trying to take responsibility for? When they call, the moment I pick up the phone, I'm the sponsor. As soon as the phone goes down, job done, I retreat back into being myself. So I don't identify myself with the role. Which tradition is that? That's tradition six. So tradition five and tradition six, my job is to perform certain tasks in the capacity of sponsor. Provide information and guidance, show how to apply the programme, but not to do the programme for them. And tradition six is not to lend, in the strict form, it's not to lend the AA name to any outside activity. The spiritual substance behind that is not to get my identity tied up with being a sponsor. So that if the sponsee says, I'm done being your sponsee, I'm not upset because I'm not attached to the role. Doesn't matter to me. So I can let it drop at any time. I have no investment at all in being anyone's sponsor. Does that make sense? As soon as you're invested, there is an image that can be attacked. I have to, to say what I need to say. Uh, I'm sure you've been in a situation where people have had to say some difficult truths to you which you didn't want to hear. And you've probably had to say some difficult truths to other people which they didn't want to hear. Like, he may never stop whatever it is that he's doing. If you're waiting to be happy until he's stopped, you could be waiting a long time. Yeah. Things like that. To be able to say that... To be able to say something that someone is not going to want to hear, I have to be willing for them to pull the plug on the relationship. If I'm so attached to the relationship, I don't want to lose the relationship, I'm not going to say what I need to say. And this is what gives me 
autonomy. So tradition six, not lending my name to the relationship, enables me to be autonomous, enables me to walk away from the relationship at any time. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a parent, how does that get sort of get applied as a parent to say, I'm only a mother as long as I'm actually sort of mothering this child? It's, it's a real, to me, I look at a parent child relationship because you're bound as a parent and child. A spouse, you can say, I can walk away from this relationship, I can dissolve a marriage. How does this one apply, like the sponsor sponsee relationship or? I'm going to give you an example. So in case that question didn't come through, the question is for the tape, how does that apply to parent-child relationships? I don't have children, but my lots of my family is mentally ill and physically ill. Um, siblings, um, uh, my mother, other people in my family. There, there are significant problems there. Um, my mother in particular is 90 years old. She lives in a care home. I manage all of her financial affairs. I'm the primary person to, although the care home is doing the practical care, I'm the one who's in charge, uh, legally, in all sorts of ways. And so... That's a responsibility which is there 24 hours a day. So if there's a call, I'm the one that has to answer the phone. If something happens, I'm the one that takes her to hospital. And last year, uh, you know, uh, if, you, if, if you want to learn about how not in control of your life you, are, you really are, have a 90-year-old mother, that will tell you a lot about how not in control you are. So when stop, she was ill last year and in and out of hospital and blah, blah, blah. Very, very difficult. And, and I was permanently on duty. And that's not dissimilar to having children because there are material ways in which she cannot look after herself and cannot make decisions. But there is a degree to which she has freedom, she has autonomy. If she doesn't want to wear the hearing aids... She gets to not wear the hearing aids and she gets to have the consequences of not wearing the hearing aids. And there are some there are some things where we have to put our feet down, put our foot down and say, no, we really need to go to the doctor about this issue or this really needs to be done or we have to see the solicitors about this or you're going to get chucked out of the country. So let's deal. there's some stuff that has to be dealt with. But there's freedom as well. Now, the direction my mother is going in, because her mind is going as well, she's got um, some form of... Um, we, we, we don't have a diagnosis, but her mind is going. Um, the direction she's going in is gradually diminishing responsibility. With children, with sponsees, with employees, it's gradually increasing responsibility. So the domain within which they have freedom of action and within which they get to bear the consequences of the choices that they make, that gradually expands. But it's an unusual situation because you as a parent have a veto. <laughs> there are times when you have to put your foot down. Um, and it's the same with elderly parents. It's the same with I've got relatives who are mentally incapacitated 
and we can't let them do what they want to do or they would be a danger to themselves and others. There are times when you have to call an ambulance and get them strapped down. That's just true. So working out where that boundary lies, especially with kids and people who are older who are going different directions, that's a moving boundary. But the principle still applies that even relatively, I've seen friends with relatively young kids that let children make certain decisions and live with the consequences of those decisions. But um, everything I do, I'm doing on behalf of my higher power. Tradition two talks about within the group, the ultimate authority is a loving higher, loving God as God expresses himself through the group conscience. Which means God is in charge, our leaders are but trusted servants. So even as the person that's responsible for my mother and can be responsible at times for various other people in my family, I'm not, I'm never ever in charge of them. God is in charge of them and God has delegated authority to me and as we're getting in a little bit into the concepts here, so concept one is ultimate authority for the whole fellowship resides with the fellowship as a whole. But that responsibility, that authority gets delegated through the, gen the GSR and the GSRs you know, take certain actions on behalf of groups. It's exactly like that with the higher power. The higher power delegates me or certain authority to... Um, take certain actions and my job is to take those actions god gives me the direction god gives me the strength but god is in charge of the results not me because the results are affected by all sorts of things outside my control does that make does that make sense so the sense of personal responsibility i'm not responsible for the personal situation i'm responsible to the higher power for taking the next right action how many of you got young kids <laughs> that was a, I know, almost a dumb question, but I needed to ask. And I never know with what films people are allowed to watch and people are not allowed to watch. Are your kids allowed to watch Frozen? Some, some of them, there's some nodding, there's some shaking. Frozen 2 is very, I don't know if you've taken your kids to it, you need to take, if it's still in the cinema, take your kids. Otherwise, the DVD is out in one month. Uh, there is a song in that, Do the Next Right Thing. I mean, it, it's straight from... It's straight from, from AA. A lot of it is straight from AA. But our job, we're not responsible for them. We're responsible for monitoring, taking the right actions where necessary. But the f other people's fate, if I try and carry other people's fate... I get weighed down by it. If I try to carry my own fate, I get weighed down by it. So, you know, I'm, I own a property and there are things going wrong with it. I've got a business and there are some difficult, it's fine, but there are some challenging situations at the moment. It's the weekend. It's not my responsibility. On a Sunday, I don't have a business. I'm not in the home at the moment. I'm not doing anything with it. I don't have a home. It's the sense of ownership which brings the burden. Does that make sense? There's a lot more to this, some more to say. Yes. Um, it triggers me that many times it happens to me that when my kid goes through something, let's say in school, mm. I feel myself, I experience it. Not that it really happens to me, but 
my fear from let's say the headmistress comes back to me my fear from being punished at school comes back to me i feel sometimes like i live my life through my kids so if we have one child that resembles me or i think i was very blocked so she's blocked and when she behaves i feel like i'm experiencing what she is experiencing and it's quite hard to put the button and say this is not me who experience it's her i can be her mother i can support i can do what i can but i I don't, the headmistress is not going to chuck me out of school tomorrow. And it's, it's a bit, it's even subconsciously, like to bring it to the surface, is uh, Yeah, I think, so there are a couple of points you've raised there, which are, are, are distinct points. The first one, if I have unprocessed garbage from the past, that unprocessed garbage, whatever I repress, I project. And to project means to take it and to throw it out of yourself, throw it out, literally throw it outside yourself, and you see out there what is actually going on inside. So anything, as I say, anything you haven't, that a person hasn't dealt with, they will see everywhere. So the way to fix that is to deal with the stuff that's inside, and there you've got the process of steps four through nine, particularly the forgiveness, um, the fear inventory and learning to see your relationship with your life very differently uh, and then the amends process clears a lot of that out um, one thing that sometimes people in recovery do is I think the technical term is dissociation where it's too painful so you shut down and you can shut down using lots of different means and through being busy and all sorts of different things. But the emotion is too much, so you shut down. And that's, in my case, sometimes that's been because the current situation which is in front of me is triggering memories which are too much, so I have to distance myself. And what you can end up is on your, on your own, in your room, alone, because being with other people is too triggering. And the trick, and this takes a long time to learn, is it's, okay, it's actually okay when you're with other people, whatever they're feeling, to feel a little bit of it. Because that is natural compassion. So compassion, its etymology is to suffer with, con, con and then passio, passio is suffering. Same root as a patient in hospital is someone who is suffering. To be patient is when you're suffering because someone's doing something you don't like. Um, so compassion means to suffer with, but it has to be proportionate. Um, what I used to do is to take someone else's suffering and make it my own. So it's to, to the ability to feel something at arm's length without pushing it away and being an ice queen but without making it your own I, I don't have you ever had this experience where something small something happens in your life which isn't very pleasant and you tell your friends and for them it becomes a drama five times bigger than it was in your own and then you have to deal with all of their emotional reactions to it or sometimes it can be when you have a bereavement in your own family and you're dealing with it and you're fine but ever it's it's having to deal with everyone else's reactions to the bereavement in your family is harder than dealing with the bereavement itself because those other people are being triggered with all of their unprocessed stuff. So the destination is not like being free of emotion. The destination is having your own stuff cleared out so you can feel a little bit of what is going on 
in order to understand where people are coming from, but without without drowning in it. Does that answer your question at all? Sure. Good. So now there's there's um there are some tips on how I use the traditions in my relationship with my other half. But I'm gonna we've done fifty five minutes. I think we should pause and have some sugar. <laughs> Thank you.